Welcome to the Schoolhouse Podcast, where it is jumping. Man, today I have the joy of interviewing Marcus. But before we get started, I just want to um, provide a heads up. I am a professional communicator, so if your school or district is looking for a speaker to come in to motivate your students or talk about anti-bullying, you can email me at purpose, originate purpose, Com. All right, Marcus, uh, introduce um, introduce yourself and tell the people about who you are and all that good stuff. Sure thing. Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be on this platform. Thank you so much, uh, my brother, for, for having me on. Been looking forward to it. Uh, my name is Marcus Sanko Phoenix. I hail from uh, Maryland, right outside of Baltimore City in a suburb of the city. I have been an educator in the public school system of Howard County for just about 12 years, uh, supporting uh, countless students of all different nationalities, ethnicities, uh, backgrounds, and walks of life. However, my primary focus has been Black students of African descent or students of color. I've been working with uh, uh, educators, administrators, counselors, therapists, all alike to support uh, the needs uh, educationally, mental health wise, and even the broader community of students that are in the public school system. Uh, I've been involved in the community, doing a lot of community work as well too, uh, in regard to healing and empowering the black community. I am an educational consultant and I consult with local museums here in the uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And uh, I am a historian of African-American culture and history. Uh, just last year, I got my master's from Morgan State University, big ups to our HBCUs. Uh, and so I like to devote my time to really using history uh, as a vehicle to empower uh, individuals and groups of people and being able to use it as a vehicle to uh, engage in thought-provoking conversations to bring us together. So I'm delighted to be on this platform once again, and I'm ready for, for the discussion, my brother. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good, man. So I always like to start off with why, why education? Why did you choose the major of education? You could have chose anything else, but you decided to choose education. Why? Oh, man. Um, well, my story is is it such where before I got heavily involved into the education system, uh, being in the public school system where I reside, I had a huge interest in basketball. I played competitively. Uh, my father and uncle and those in my family played at a high level, and so I was one of those young men. Like I like I've uh, worked with uh, many young men as well. Uh, we have similar ties. I see myself and a lot of the young men that I've taught and I've worked with. I was at a point in my young age where I wanted to go to the NBA. I wanted to be a professional basketball player. And as I played in college and as I played in high school, I noticed something. I noticed that a lot of the young black males who, was, who were on my teams, it's almost like they thought sports or athletics was the only way to be successful. They thought as though that basketball, maybe having some some bars or some ill rhymes, you know, and not many other options outside of that. They thought that that was the only route and trajectory they could take in order to be able to have an honest livelihood. And it was their meal ticket, so to speak, out of their situation. And as I got older, I reflected on that more and more. And so 
one of the things that used to really be in my mind a lot was why is the scope and the parameters so so narrow in terms of how we envision ourselves and in terms of where we see our plight and how far we think we can go and so going into education i wanted to help students broaden their their scope as to what they could aspire to accomplish and achieve not to say that you can't go to the nfl or you can't be in the nba or not to try to shoot any young person's dreams or goals down however as as history um speaks uh, and and this is why i love history history gives us a roadmap to be able to see all of the the individuals uh all of the the uh all of those who have done a wonderful things beyond the scope of just those narrow basketball, football, entertainment, uh, you know, our history or, or African-American history, black history. Uh, there's a lot of different names, you know, we refer to it as, but there's scientists, there's doctors, there's lawyers, entrepreneurs, there's barbers, there's various professionals, scholars, teachers even. So there's so much to choose from. And I saw that it, it was such a narrow scope and I wanted to get in the education system to help reconstruct those narratives in my students' head. And man, you know, I appreciate you sharing what you just shared, right? Right. So you talked about how, you know, typically, you know, a lot of black young men, they only see, they see, people who are rappers, dancers, and in, in sports. It's like, you know, just as culturally speaking, black men, black young males can be so much more than just that. Like you were saying, like, it's nothing wrong with striving for those dreams, but I believe that a lot of black men need to see people more, like, more than just those, just entertainment. Like, right. like you were saying, like educators, doctors lawyers like knowing that hey there's a future just outside of entertainment there's so much more options that young black men have you know so um i appreciate you sharing that man so now i know that you mentioned you know your inspiration but how has it been being a black educator like you being a black man and an educator how has that experience been throughout your uh 12 years of education that's a great question. And, you know, I would say that one of the reasons, once again, that why I wanted to enter into the educational system and the educational structure was to help change the narrative in terms of how my students viewed themselves and what they felt they could aspire to. And part of that changing the narrative was being a black face in front of them. Mm. And so when we talk about changing the narrative, we're talking about not just from a theoretical sense in terms of your career, what your profession is, what you do beyond school, but also in a very pragmatic, practical sense. All of my students and my colleagues and contemporaries knew when I was teaching, I would have a shirt and a tie on or I would dress professional. My students would refer to me as Mr. Nix. There was a certain level of passion and, and, and uh, professional uh, 
energy that I would bring to my profession and my students could feel that. And so being a black uh, teacher, that's huge because where I'm at in my school district, I'm the minority. You know, mm. the, the makeup is largely, largely predominantly white females. Mm. And so because that's the makeup, it's almost like I found that students flocked to me more. Students, I attracted more students because there wasn't as many such as myself. Uh, mm. One of the things that also happens is as a, as a black educator, there are so many things we have to navigate and deal with uh, in the educational system beyond just the beyond just teaching. So whenever things happen as a black male in the education system, it's important to also be able to have other black males in the system as well, too, that you can connect with, you can relate to. And that is a lot of times lacking. There's already a, a shortage in many school districts as it is in terms of representation and, and teachers of color. However, I would say that there's even a, 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 a more significant shortage of black teachers uh, of color who are men. And so when you look at it from that perspective, you know, I, I take it as my responsibility. I, I, I'm excited about it. Um, and one of the things that happens is if we're not careful, we can overwork ourselves because we'll feel as though because I'm the Lone Ranger or because I'm in the minority in terms of the amount of black men in the space, I have to take on everything. I got to uh, overcompensate for the lack of me being where I am. I got to now do all the things and that can lead to burnout. And so I think that's important to, to, to raise up, especially as we're in this time where we've seen a lot of that these past couple of years. Right, right. And so you mentioned one thing I, I kind of want to piggy on. Sure. Is that you said that as a as an educator, you know, as a black male educator, there were so many things that you have to deal with outside of teaching. Can you kind of elaborate on exactly, you know, what what do you mean when you, when you say that? Sure. So as a as a black educator, it's not just the fundamentals of lesson planning, grading papers, teaching, meeting with students after school, all of those things. Those things are part of the, the role. However, oftentimes as black professionals in the education system, there's a advocacy component that is a, that is a whole nother layer on top of what we already do. So I found myself being an activist in a sense, or being an advocate, or uh, being one that is supporting my students and social justice matters as well, too. So, you know, recently when, when George Floyd happened and when Breonna <coughs> Taylor happened, you know, students, they came and seek, sought advice on how to organize protests. You know, students wanted advice on how can they learn historically about some of the protests and resistance movements in history, uh, galvanizing staff members, because staff members also need healing and support and empowerment and being able to make sure that they are good so they could give their best to their students. So there's always been, not just now, but even historically, when we talk about the educational tradition of the Black experience on up uh, from the, the 1800s to the 1900s, 
what you find is it wasn't just learning, reading, writing, arithmetic, and all those things, but there was also a sense of how, what is this extra social responsibility to uplift my race and to move them beyond the limited confines that societal oppression and racism would want to have them stagnated within. So because of that, there's an extra lift. There's an extra layer of responsibility. And it's something I don't take lightly. And I'm sure many other black educators would would uh, could relate to that um, as well. Yeah, man. And you mentioned you mentioned about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. I kind of want to take some time to talk about that because I, I do think it's important, you know, teaching history. Well, first, let me ask teaching history. Has there ever been any restrictions in terms of you teaching students, you know, content about history? Because a lot of, a lot of people, I hear a lot of things about saying, hey, you know, teachers aren't really allowed to teach real history. Like they say, Colum um, what's the guy? Dang. Columbus. Mr. Columbus discovered America. <laughs> so just using that as an example, like, yeah. did, did you have any restrictions in terms of what you can teach in history? Well, when I was working with my students teaching African-American studies seminar, uh, I would say I would I had the ability to bring in a lot of variety and a lot of different sources and resources to be able to support my teaching efforts. And I didn't have a whole lot of surveillance like a lot of educators do right now in this particular moment in time. You know about critical race theory and stuff being banned. These are relevant issues that are happening as we speak. Now, my experience, I've been fortunate to not have to have a whole lot of that. Um, there's, and, and I would say to you, in my experience teaching, though, there has been some things that I've noticed. And one of the things I noticed is a lot of students, they hesitate to take African-American studies. So I did seven years middle school, five years high school. And a lot of students have an interest in teaching African-American or they have an interest in learning African-American studies, but they hesitate. They're a little bit nervous about it. They're not sure if they want to take the class. And I've discovered a lot of times they take that position is because they a lot of times it's taught from a victimization perspective. Mm. Their point of, is taught from slavery, violence, brutality, hostility. Mm. And yes, th this is part of the experience. This is a part of the, the experience, but the but this is not the total experience. And so when I try to teach, I try to bring more complexity and speak about themes of black joy and speak about themes of resistance and agency and speak about intersectionality in terms of the identities and stuff. And so uh, that that has been something that I've had to try to work with students to overcome is that that fear and that and that trauma. You know, I you, I had to teach them a trauma informed approach because the history is it is what it is. So um, and then it just seems like it's never enough time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You always yeah. seem like you're catching up for lost time. Right, right. You <laughs> know, I man, I agree. I don't think I've ever took a history class that did not talk about slavery, that did not talk about how we were abused. And I'm just like reminiscing. I think the only class 
I was I took one class. It was U.S. history, and it kind of exposed me to other parts of history besides, you know, slavery and just getting abused and all this trauma that we have faced as a culture. So I like how you you take that approach. Like there's so much more to our history than just than just that. Like the sad the sad part in a sense. You know what I mean? Definitely. So. And, and if I could, you know, say this, like um, <clears throat> one of my good colleagues. <clears throat> Uh, Dr. Legarrett King, who's in Buffalo, New York, who who's got some some uh, material out. I know this is one of the works that he has here: perspectives of Black histories in schools. You know, history should balance these themes of victimization. You know, because we do know that structural racism exists exists and all those things. But mm. b b giving humanity back to those who were enslaved and those who were subject to subjected to Jim Crow and those who had to deal with the hostility and the and the turmoil. And so I like to take a strength-based approach and say, okay, even though there was slavery, even though there were black codes and laws in place, how did they persevere? How how did they sneak and steal books and start schools within the, the slave community? How did they plan, plot, and strategize to run away? Mm -hmm. Harriet Tubman with 13 trips back and forth and didn't get caught once. You know, so it's important to recover these stories uh, because if we don't recover these stories and tell them with more accuracy and more complexity, <laughs> then it's just going to continue to have a lot of our young people feel like, man, the, the history associated with my identity is that I was chattel. I was property, mm -hmm. like a piece of furniture, or that I never did anything and I never will do yeah. anything and I can't learn anything. So it's really important to understand how we introduce this to them. I've been to museums, man, and when I walked into some of these museums and I said stuff to the staff members, when you walk in, the first part of the actual exhibit is the slave ship. That's the middle passage, the first part. And okay, we know that the slave trades happened and we know right. that the middle passage and there was, you know, the ships and all that. But what about taking it back to those civilizations in Africa of antiquity? You know, mm. the, the Nubias and the ancient Kemet and, mm. you know, Kush and all of these different. So, you know, it's important to be able to once again, we're not trying to romanticize and act like right. something didn't happen. You know, right. say, oh, so if you come from another perspective, you're trying to say slavery wasn't all that bad. No, it was. But there's more to the story than that. We got to expand our scope of how we view history. Mm, that's real, man. And I know that you would take that. That, uh, that like I love your approach. That is so cool. So when you would take that approach, like when you were in the classroom teaching, would you start off with? this is where we come from or would you start like how like how did you go about you know teaching your lesson plan in terms of when it came to history basically is where i'm getting at if that makes yeah, that's sense. a great question that's a, i love that question and so i would say current events are a great opportunity to talk about history so <laughs> usually and there's current events happening all the time if you mm -hmm. wanted to talk about books being banned, as we mentioned already, or if we want to talk about critical race theory or the policing of the circulation of ideas, 
all you got to do is go back and look at a, a Frederick Douglass story when he's trying to learn and the slave master slaps the book out of the mistress's hand and says he can't read because reading and knowledge will make a, a man unfit to be a slave. You know, um, if you look at what happened uh, with uh, January 6th and you see how there's um, the trial and all that happening, you could link that to uh, emancipation, civil war. We just came from Juneteenth. What did that mean? What happened? So to answer your question, I like to start with current events because students are on social media on the, all the time. They always got their phones on them. They're plugged in. And when they see stuff that happens, you can then take that and then historicize it and go in time and say, this is what happened then. This is what happened now. What's your analysis? What is different? What is the same? What can we do to impact the future? And engage in conversation, you know, let them speak, let them share and give them variety, music, pictures, poetry, uh, song. You know, I've had students who have liked to write. Some students like to speak. Just provide a multitude of ways that you can engage with students. And I think that that can be able to help address a lot of the different types of ways students can be able to take in the info. Wow. And that's that's pretty cool, man. I, I appreciate you sharing that. You mentioned critical race theory. Man, that topic is hot yeah. right now. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. <laughs> man, I mean, every post. Almost every post I see is something about critical race theory, man. Let's let's kind of dive into that because that is, that is something that's hot right now. So yeah, so let's um do so what information do you know just from critical race theory? Like what what is critical race theory? So what I've known critical race theory to be, and I'm still delving into it every day learning as much as I can like the next person. But what I know about it is that it generate it generally began in the 60s from scholars in higher education, uh, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and they came up with a theoretical framework in the legal field, in the legal uh, sector of education uh, to be able to <coughs> reimagine and look at structural inequalities and structural racism and why they still persist, even though there have been marches and even though there had been efforts from from African-Americans to continue to push forward to gain equality in the way that it should be, why do these inequities still exist? So it, it, it looks at race, uh, but it also broadens the conversation to not just center it on race, but to even go broader into the intersectionality, the identity, race, religion, sex, gender, class, age, all of these things. Because if we just look at race solely, as Bell Hooks speaks, it will minimize and limit the capacity in the way we understand our reality as it is. So, but what's happening it's critical race theory is being used as a catch-all phrase. And so people are actually conflating critical race theory with black history. Mm. So when they say, oh, well, they don't want to teach, you know, they, critical race theory, they don't want to teach black history. Well, it's not necessarily the same thing. Critical race theory is a theory. 
it's a it's a lens. It's a way to imagine and, and to view the world. Um, black history or African-American history or African history, however we want to refer to it as or brand it, it's not necessarily mutually exclusive or one and the same with critical race theory. I think that it's important to grapple with history and it's very important to confront history. Some of our scholars say hard history. You got to confront hard history. You got to confront the truth. But I also think it's important to really think about how we teach this truth or how we teach this history. And I always believe that it's important not to polarize or romanticize, but humanize. So in other words, as we try to teach history or teach that which is from the past, how, how can we look at it? How can it be something to connect us? How can we heal from it? How can we be appreciative for what those have gone through that have that have come before us? And yes, some discomfort may happen. Yes, we might feel some guilt. We might become aware of our prejudices. We might become more aware of our biases, but that's all a part of the healing process. And even the research suggests the more you avoid and the more you run from things, the worse it gets. So I would suggest whenever we can develop the capacity we acknowledge this history. We confront this history. In a few days, we're going to be at 4th of July, where there's going to be a lot of celebration. There's going to be fireworks popping, cookouts, tailgates. But in 1740, in South Carolina, that was when anti-literacy laws were first implemented, where African-Americans were restricted to read or write or grapple with literacy. That's before the Declaration of Independence was signed. Hmm. And be, and that happened because it was one year after the Stono Rebellion. And when we look at insurrections and uprisings, a lot of times those who were first lead the charge were those who were literate. They, know, they, they was able to read to a degree or write or to be able to think in ways beyond their plantational limitations. And so as we look at that, there's always been that political aspect of if we give too much information, if we let it all out, if we start to now let this stuff be taught, what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> no, man, you got me tuned in, man. I feel like I'm in history class all over again, man. So you're saying that before the Declaration of Independence, people didn't, their, their rights to read were, were taken away from them. Yes, yeah, so it so in the in the South especially, and, and we're and definitely don't want to just limit it to the South because okay. the, because the North also was known to have slavery in uh, New York, Boston, different places like that. However, uh, we can say that the South had a had a uh, uh, had its impact on slavery in 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 many ways. Uh, that other places around the country did not. But when we talk about literacy, and a great book that helps to speak to this is the book by Jarvis Givens, Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson, and the Art of Black Teaching. It speaks to how there's always been uh, restraints and there's always been tension around what those of African descent can learn, what is appropriate for them to learn, who should teach them, 
what are the consequences and punishments if they do learn? And so uh, when it came to, once again, uprisings and insurrections, what is oftentimes not even talked about, many times uh, the backlash is to be able to intensify the restrictions on access to education. Even when Nat Turner uh, did his, uh, led the insurrection and was in Southampton, Virginia, and, you know, uh, was doing what he did, shortly thereafter, they shut down a lot of the school systems and the educational structures that were in place to be able to keep, once again, Africans from being able to engage with literacy. Uh, and so that's why literacy has been criminalized. It's been criminalized. Now, the other side of the narrative is that many of those who uh, were at the brunt of these anti-literacy laws and restrictions, they didn't just raise their hands and say, okay, we're doomed. Okay, we, we're, we're going to stop. Some of them ran off and, and created uh, communities in the woods and in the forest. Some of them started well, what's referred to as pit schools. Some of them uh, stole an education or stole books from out of the house. Some of them would have spellers under their hats. Uh, uh, some of them would even entice other children, perhaps the white children of the slave master to teach them how to read and write. So it was by any means necessary, the hunger and the, and the thirst to be able to educate oneself was always there. And so even though there have been efforts to be able to minimize and criminalize education, because don't get it twisted. If you was caught with a book in your hand, you could get locked up. Your finger could get chopped off. You could get hung. You could get whipped. These, this was the, the consequence through violence. However, as we see today, we look and see all of these restrictions and whatnot we can see the long memory and see how that's connected to that of the past. We just have to go back to the past or do what they refer to as Sankofa. We have to look to the past as we make our plight and look towards the future. Wow. Okay. Okay. Man, that, yeah. that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot of good stuff. I'm trying to. Sure. Like, yeah. Just soak it all in, man. You can sense the passion. You can you can sense the passion, but it's so yeah. important, though, man. It's I love so it, man. Nowadays, absolutely, most definitely, <laughs> man. And that's the plat. This is a platform for it, man. And and you mentioned something. You said you talked about critical race theory and how people are getting history. Or you said, did you? I want to make sure that I'm saying this right. You said Black history, right? Yes. Critical, okay. How come? People, well, let me start for the first question. How come you, what, why do you think that people are getting these two things mixed together, like coexisting in like the same conversation? Why sure. is that happening? Right. That's a, that's a good question. I, I think, I think partially mm -hmm. because a lot of times we'll say stuff and not really delve into what something actually really is. So I, I would suggest that it's important to really search and do our homework when we claim to, to, to say stuff uh, or, 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 you know, verbalize stuff. Hmm. That's important, you know, and, and I'm not excluded from that. I think it's important to be able to make sure we know what we're talking about because it can be easy to just throw around 
terms and concepts and then it becomes we're just saying this so what is we but but we can lose clarity in the process by not really being sure what we're actually really trying to say mm. uh i think that once again there's been a long past up until now of black history oftentimes being erased and being eliminated and not being included in the larger scope of education. So I think it's easy to automatically say, oh, well, that's just black history, because we see that a lot of times. We see that, okay, you know, there are some, I don't want to generalize, there are some school systems that do have black history uh, classes, uh, educational programs, and things like that. However, there's still, as a whole, a lot left to be desired in terms of making sure that black perspectives and black voices are central and centered in the grand narrative of things. And one of the things that I try to say is that black history is not just for black folk. Mm. For me, black history is a story of humanity. Mm. And you can look at the experience of Jim Crow, you can look at the experience of reconstruction, post-emancipation, you can look at slavery, you can look at slave trade, you can look at civil rights, you can look at all of these stories and all of these movements and all of these occurrences. And there's always a broader story that can be told that can be applicable to any human being. If a, a you know, think about a loved one. We all have someone who we care for dearly. We all have somebody who we love. And think about if that person that we love and care for was no longer with us. Right. Well, every day on that plantation, some of the enslaved were anxious. They were nervous. They were uneasy because they knew in the drop of a hat, they could the, 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 the sellers could come and sell off one of their family members at any moment, at any given time. Yeah. Who can't relate to that? Who can't connect or, or or vibe with that? Yeah, yeah. So, So we have to make sure that we don't limit how we imagine this history because I believe that it could be something that everybody can reflect on, think about, and improve upon. Uh, and then there's a lot of anger. Let's be real. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of lack of trust. Yeah. Certain races, not like in other races and all those types of things. But however, it's still important to add the complexity. Um, there's, a, there's, there's more research coming out about race-based trauma and all those types of things. And Sometimes we'll generalize and say all white people were this, all black people were that. And once again, I, and I, I maintained this, we have to continue to think more expansive and more complex about the narratives and the stories that we tell. Yes, there were those who were in the Klan. And yes, there were those who have been racist political figures. Yes, there have been those who... Uh, sold and auctioned off the enslaved, but there was also those who had a house who Harriet Tubman and her people would spend the night and then 
at the, in the morning, they would continue to work their way up north. There were also some white abolitionists who had papers and blacks could actually write columns in the paper and wow. spread the word around. There was also some who were referred to as Quakers who mm. actually had a whole different outlook and ideology on slave relations and, and whatnot. So once again, we just have to think more broadly and move beyond the cute and the neat and tidy narrative yeah. that we've been given. Man, and, and you know, it's funny because one thing that you said, and that's kind of how I'm, you know, I'm picking up what you're saying. You know, sometimes I feel like, you know, when I learned history in school is that black people were, you know, they went through racism and slavery, picking cotton, et cetera. And the white people were the bad people. But I like what you said, man, is that not all white people were 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 like, you know, were bad or, you know, were were a, like uh, for slavery. There were some white people that were fighting on our side as well during those tough times. So I, I just, you know, I like I, I, if I'm picking up what you're saying, I believe some of that you said was, you know, what you were saying was true. Absolutely. And, and you know, and as I say this. And I'm going to slow down as I say this, because from the work that I've done with students, grown people, educators, mm -hmm. what you just said and what I'm saying, these are things that a lot of us have to work towards. There's a yeah. book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. It speaks a lot about this trauma, this historical intergenerational trauma. No, it's all white folks, all of them bad. Throw them all away. All of these white teachers, they can't teach me nothing. They can't give me nothing. Now, listen, I'm not trying to say that the institutional structural racism doesn't exist. And I'm yeah. not trying to say that historically up to present, they are not things that, that white people have done uh, to black folk to oppress them um, that are racist and, and all of those things. However, we have to go beyond just generalizing and painting everybody with a broad stroke and a broad brush. In fact, even amongst the black community, everybody doesn't agree on everything. Yeah, Everybody doesn't agree on everything. And as you look at historically, some of the, the, the topics about repatriating, going mm -hmm. back to Africa or staying in the country or going to the Caribbean, you know, um, in the in the 1800s or when you talk about integration or segregation and what that was going to everybody did not agree on everything yeah and and yeah. that's actually good because mm -hmm. when you have different perspectives and different modes of thinking and different schools of thought it makes the conversation more rich if everybody's thinking the same thing and marching to the same tune in the same beat then how can we move beyond that? And that's what I try to urge my students to become critical thinkers. Don't even take what Mr. Nick says. Don't even take what, mm -hmm. what Mali Kofa says. You can take what I say, but then further your research and further your exploration and do your own homework. Mm -hmm. That's real, man. That is real. And what now, in your experience of education, have you ever experienced... Well, let's specifically talk about history teachers. Um, have these real conversations or these conversations as a whole, because I think you mentioned how 
um, so far as in the education system, you know, I guess like speaking the truth of history is not like a nationwide thing because I know you mentioned you said that there are some programs that have like history programs and and things like that that are already implemented in the district, but as a as a like wide nation, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, so I guess my question is to you is what do you think that the education system, I'm kind of switching up a little bit. I'm sorry. What, I'm, with what, you. I'm with you. Yeah, what do you think the education system will have to do to kind of implement, you know, like having these implement this into the curriculum pretty much? Well, I think one of the things that educators can do, and I referenced Jarvis Gibbons and I'll, I'll you know, raise up his work and, and what he has uh, addressed, and I wholeheartedly agree. I think we have to go beyond this notion of anti-racism in education. Mm. That's another quick, hot buzzword that is um, very pervasive and expansive throughout a lot of education districts. Um, I know Abram Kendi has, you know, is one who is associated with um, creating that term, and I think that there's some good things we could take from that. But I think when we frame anti anything, it's oftentimes uh, not don't do this. Hmm. Black, the black experience is based on um, whites not doing something or not being racist to them. And, hmm. and something about that seems very limiting and hmm. very narrow. And so when we talk about education, I think hmm. that the voices of black teachers should be centered more because a lot of black teachers are in these spaces, they're in these education systems and they're walking black history. They're walking black history. Why? Because it's their experiences being black. And I'm not trying to say all black people have the same experiences, but when we talk about black history, you're driving down the highway and the cops, you know, are behind you. The the, the what your body may feel or you know, uh I had a a relative tell me they don't want to drive down south because the remembrance, the 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 memories and the feelings and the vibe, it makes them feel uncomfortable and they get kind of nervous. Um, being profiled racially, uh, all of the different things, the the micro and macro aggressions, these are things that many of our black educators are are dealing with. So when we talk about anti-racism, who better to be centered in that? conversation, but those black educators. So that's one thing I would say is really folk looking at your black educators and looking at what they bring to the table and where they're at. There's a study that came out in I think 2011 that spoke to the dropout rate, not from teachers, but from black educators. Many black educators are dropping out and, and, and moving on to other professions or leaving the school systems. Uh, and it's not just black educators, it's a lot of educators, but them especially because they're not being utilized in the way, in the best way that they could be. Now, the other thing about it to answer your question furthermore is we have to reimagine how we do black history or how we do, you know, how our African, how, how our history is taught. And I think the reality is a lot of times you have to go above and beyond what you're given by your school district. You got to. 
I mean, when I'm teaching, I'm bringing in primary sources from different places, books from my own home library, articles, different things. And that's sad, but I do that to be able to provide as quality of an educational experience for my students as possible. There needs to also be spaces for like you and I are having this conversation. Yeah. These spaces need to be opened up for educators to be able to engage with one or to talk about in, uh, you know, what's going on because the education profession a lot of times is transactional. You think about teachers as doers and those who do lesson plans and those who grade papers and those, do, but there's also an intellectual component. And so by having educators in these same spaces, we could talk and tell stories about what's worked for us, what's not worked for us. So it's important to make sure, I think also that we give these educators space to just engage with one another and talk about the different aspects of the profession. Uh, there's a lot of wellness and mental health support that educators and teachers need that they don't have. Mm. And we see that play out in the past couple of years. So it's no coincidence that educators are, are, are moving on to other professions. They're retiring early. A lot of educators uh, feel unsafe in their schools or they feel unsupported. They're burning out. And then when we see stuff like Uvalde, Texas, we see stuff yeah. And with these shootings, this is just extra trauma to compound the trauma that already exists. Yeah. yeah. So so how how are we going to unpack that? How can and, and the problem and the challenge that a lot of educators have is hard to focus on ourselves. Self-care is so challenging because the mindset is I got to take care of my student. I got to support my, my, my children. I got to make sure they're good. I'm a nurturer. I'm a giver. I'm a fixer. That is good. But if you self-explode or self-implode and you destruct, yeah. you go down, your students, your family, your spouse, your administrators, they're not going to have anything. So we have to normalize self-care for educators. And what that means is setting boundaries. We can't mm. do everything. We have to sometimes say, "N O, yeah, no. yeah, yeah." And you and, and I know we had a conversation about. We I did. Remember, yeah, we had a conversation about. I remember you were saying that the uh, principal wanted you to um, monitor the cafeteria, and you and you 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 use those two those two uh, letters. You right. said, "Yeah," and and it, and and it's it's just being assertive. It doesn't mean being hostile or being disrespectful or, or right. any of those things. But there's a lot to, to, to be said about when you can assert yourself and stand up for yourself and just communicate clearly your needs and your desires. Whenever we went virtual, uh, as, as the pandemic started to bear down heavy and as stuff all around the country closed down, a lot of educators felt guilty because, man, I now can't see my students they're gonna yes. they're gonna drop, they're gonna fail, they're gonna lose what they've learned, and I'm doing them a disservice. So a lot of times, like teachers didn't know when to when to shut their computer down, or they didn't know when to stop responding to emails, or they was, you know, and I get it. They were trying to adjust to virtual life and all that type of stuff and learn how to teach it in a new way. But that is something that I've noticed from my 12 years of being in the education system. And I'm talking to myself as well. You know, 
we give and we love our students and we want to support them and we want to engage with them. But at times, we don't know when to just take a step back for a moment and just woosah, breathe a little bit, meditate. Right. You know? and, but, but if I say this, let me also say this for the person on the other side of the spectrum, because what happens is we'll then say no to everything and then yeah. we'll end up not doing anything. <laughs> so I think one of the things that this time period has taught us in education, not seeing our students um, and being restricted has taught us to be flexible. Mm. I, you know, what is good might not be the type of good that it was in 2018. I have to accept that we're in a we're in a a global pandemic right now. As I try to teach amidst COVID, um, that's okay. I'm doing the best I can with what I have. That's okay. But that self talk will eat us alive, and we'll start to feel guilty. And then what happens is we got to be careful with that media, the news. Because mm. it'll also paint these pictures and tell these narratives. Oh, the educators don't want to come back into the schools. They lazy, open up the schools. You don't want to teach the students. Mm. You know, and that's not all the way true either. You know, educators have a lot of real issues and families and concerns, just like the students and everybody else does. Yeah. So, you know, it's 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 a complicated phenomenon. And we do know a lot of students have some hard realities at home and they did lose a lot of resources and things at home. So, uh, you know, there are those who did not bode well and and that showed. But there was also some whenever we had to go to virtual learning, they were coasting. They did better at home at the crib than they did in Miss Johnson's class. You know, yeah. and there was actually a, a, a article that came out that I, that I read about a year or so ago that I was speaking to when schools opened back up. A lot of African-Americans were going to vouch to not return. And, wow. and so you see homeschooling increasing. And mm. then you also see these what they refer to as parallel black institutions being developed or these supplemental ways, freedom schools, um, you know, pod learning programs homeschooling academies, you see, you know, these, these, these different alternative models of education happening because people are like, you know what, this wasn't, this wasn't too bad. We had, we struggled a little bit, but this is better than what they was getting before. So I would also say, you know, this pandemic and whatnot in terms of the educational landscape, it just brought a lot of stuff to the forefront that was already there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that's what I would say about that. Wow, man. You share some some really good information, man. And so, <clears throat> of course, I want to, uh, we're about to come to an end at the Schoolhouse Podcast, man. It has been a joy chopping yeah. up with you, Marcus, and having this conversation about critical race theory, from Black history, from how to educate students in the classroom, you know, and how like to relate current events to what happened in the past. So man, it's it's been a joy, man. But of course, we can't end off with uh, the question I love to ask is, where do you see yourself in the next five years? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think I'm going to be doing a lot of what I'm already doing, my brother. Uh, just mm -hmm. on another level, I'm a I'm a husband. I'm a father. 
I'm a family man, one who uh, is continuing to understand the value and the importance of, of extended community. So I, I, I plan to continue this work of trying to empower, to educate, to liberate the minds um, of those who uh, want to engage with me and how we can explore from a critical lens of history. Um, I recently started a, a business called History Heals Consulting. So I plan to, uh, for that to, to, to be successful. And, and I think that that is something that will be. I'm going to put it into existence. I'm already going to claim it. Um, and so for those tuning in, listening, I'm still getting some structural things with that in place. But you can reach out to me on Instagram at Marcus Sankofa Nix. Um, I'm on Facebook at Marcus Sankofa Nix. And my email is uh, M-N-I-C-K-S dot historian. Um, H-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N at gmail.com. And soon I'll have, you know, some other things in place like a website and whatnot. But but yes, that's what I continue to do. Just continue to uh, be a, uh, a scholar of, uh, of the profession and to learn and humble myself and be a student. And uh, also make sure that I balance out life with all of this. It's easy to get sucked in, but make sure that my health and, and wellness is intact and and that's pretty much what it is. Um, nice. Yeah. nice. I like it, that's cheeky, man. I like what you got going on over there. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate Most it. I think I would do a little something to, you know, uh, bring bring a little bit of, of myself to the conversation today. So thank you, and my you, brother. And you definitely did, man. And um, that is all, man. And thank you for your time, Marcus. Thank you for having me. No problem. Welcome to the Schoolhouse Podcast Office, man, where it is jumping. All right. So, man, Marcus dropped some gems, man. He talked about, he mentioned about critical race theory, which is a very, very hot topic that's trending in education right now. We talked about how, you know, how the conversation with critical race theory and Black history, how they both can kind of coexist and how they're one in the same, but he breaks that down, you know, from his perspective. And he also talked about how, you know, as, you know, as an educator, you can teach history with current events that's happening right now, that's trending and relate it back to what happened in the past and kind of have those kind of dialogues in the classroom. But um, thank you all for listening to the Schoolhouse podcast where it, where it is jumping Peace, and we are out.